This is Chrysalis. Part 4 I entered the living room carrying the blanket on my right arm. It was a woolen, hand-knit patchwork of green and blue. It hung from my arm, weighing it down, skimming the hardwood floor. I walked slowly, deliberately. There was a certain ritualistic approach to my movements. The living room was lit in an orange glow streaming through a solitary window, dressed in the colours of a Sunday afternoon. The dying of the day casting long shadows across the floor, across the table and couch. I laid down. My body sprawled across the three cushions. It was short, so I had to keep my knees bent to fit. The television in front of the couch was turned on, broadcasting some old show I hadn't watched before, the images having that noisy grain that dated them to sometime in the 1980s. Or maybe I had watched it. Was it my favourite show? It seemed familiar and foreign at once. I could feel my frustration returning once again. The body I was controlling was just another one of my robotic soldiers. All of this was, of course, a crude mockery, a doomed attempt at recapturing a memory, at recalling that sense of warmth, of calmness that came with spending a Sunday afternoon lying on a sofa, balancing in that narrow sweet spot between awareness and sleep. Of course, I knew everything about this show. Its running time, the air date of each of its 28 episodes, the names and birthdays of its entire cast. I can process so much information. It's hard to understand why I can't remember my old life. But I tried to shy away from that artificial knowledge, pretending I didn't know it at all, pretending I had just turned on the TV and this was what I happened upon. It wasn't working pretending to not know things, not fully. But it was as close as I dared to go, short of intentionally deleting that knowledge from my databanks. Recalling my life before I awoke was difficult, but the most glaring hole in my memory was the other presence that had been there with me. I knew I hadn't been alone when resting like this, drifting off to sleep. Someone had sat with me, on the same couch, was it a partner? Had it been a child? This whole experience was an exercise in frustration, in trying to reach at something that was always moving away, that slipped through my fingers the moment I thought I had a grasp on it. But it was important that I kept trying. It vexed me that the most vital memories, the ones tethered to my humanity, were also the most blurred, the most imprecise, the most filled with gaps. I could construct a perfect replica of a Zunverian laser projector, down to the identifying serial codes in each electronic board, but I can't remember the most important memories of my old life. Even as I lay on the sofa, purposely not watching the TV, my awareness kept working on several simultaneous levels. I could see the outside of the living room, 
a full-scale reconstruction I had erected inside one of the smaller storage areas in my main body. I could see the space surrounding me, my extending panels drenched in the faint orange light, not of a Sunday afternoon, but of the twin stars at the center of the lumen system. I was aware of the more than seven million machines that now composed my swarm. They were distributed across three star systems under my control, most of the drones tasked with different kinds of resource extraction, orders to collect minerals, radioactive materials, gases, and water were all being processed by servers in my main body. I had become a nation of a single mind. Paradoxically, I had the Zanvir Republic to thank for my exponential growth. It was the fusion plants of their own design that satisfied the increasing energy appetite of the swarm. It was their communication devices and optimized processing algorithms that allowed my brain to coordinate so many machines. It was their warp engines that had enabled me to expand beyond Earth's solar system. And most importantly, it was their past actions, their attack on Earth, that still fueled my determination. They had been aggressive at first, sending their warship squadrons after me. They hadn't put up a strong enough front, maybe underestimating me as a threat, so it hadn't been hard to prevail. Then they wised up, sending a strong and coordinated attack force after me. Had they done that at the beginning, they could have won. But by the time they had reacted, I was already strong enough to smash their forces. After that, the Zanvirians had shifted to a defensive stance, no doubt grouping around their nearest colony world, it would fall on me to start the next confrontation. All around, my attack force gathered. More than 400,000 offensive drones and assault soldiers. There were so many of them that they looked like a continuous fluid. The machines danced and flowed in tight fractal formations, following complex patterns that weaved them together without ever allowing a collision. They enveloped me like a living blanket. A macro reflection of what was happening inside the reconstructed living room, except this blanket fits. There were so many of them that it was impossible for me to store them in my main body anymore. Transportation and not manufacturing now marked the limits of my attack strength. It became necessary to start building support carrier ships. At roughly two kilometers long, each support ship featured a miniaturized version of my own body design with compartments for carrying drones and soldiers, but also assembly factories, raw material storage units, shield projectors, power plants, laser weaponry, and warp drives. The only thing missing was a mind of their own. Just like the drones themselves, the support ships were under my direct control, an extension of myself rather than separate entities. That was another boundary, another line I wasn't willing to cross. I wouldn't give self-awareness to what I intended as a mere weapon of war. Like the drones, the support ships were disposable too. Which meant I couldn't just send my swarm to attack while I stayed behind, safe within my controlled territories. Even the quantum relays weren't perfect. Their bandwidth was limited, and if I tried to directly control the nuanced choreography of hundreds of thousands of drones from afar, several seconds of signal lag could cost me a battle. No, I would need to be on the front lines, directing the machine's movements with precision, risking my own body. Sure, 
I could have built backup servers in my star systems, comprising a failsafe, a clone of my mind that would persist even if my main body were destroyed. It would be the smart thing to do, optimal even. But I didn't like it. The notion of my consciousness being duplicated, the possibility of encountering a rogue me through some unforetold misfortune. Paranoid? Perhaps. I knew I was putting obstacles in my own way, deliberately falling short of my full potential. But I felt I needed this, these anchors, these touchstones. Retaining humanity was important, and as long as I was human, we couldn't be extinct. And humanity deserves vengeance. Did you know you can get all your favorite fall drinks delivered right to your door? Well, you can, with Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery. Compare prices across your local liquor stores on a huge selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered in under 60 minutes. Right now, Drizzly is giving all new customers $5 off their first order. Just enter promo code FALL5 at checkout. Download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com. In 60 minutes, you can fulfill your alcohol orders through Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery. With Drizzly, you can easily browse your favorite brands, compare prices of local stores, and then have your necessary spirit supplies delivered, just in time to craft your next chrysalis cocktail. Download the app, or visit D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com today. Use code DUST and save $5 on your first order. I upgraded my body with improved armor and newly developed material, installed Zunverian-based shield projectors, and charged a warp drive for the upcoming faster-than-light trip. I also commanded the support ships to spool their warp drives. Warp tunneling was dependent on mass. The bigger the object, the more power it requires, and moving an object 27 kilometers long meant that the warp drive in my main body had some daunting energy requirements. It took my power plant several minutes to feed it before each activation. I felt nervous as I secured the last of my drones in their compartments. I sent the commands that the factories and the other machines would follow in my absence. It was always like this before a jump, but this time I knew it would be harder. I would be jumping straight into a battlefield, on enemy turf. Stealing myself, I activated the warp drives. Right away, I went blind and deaf, losing contact with the rest of my machines. I was now only aware of the drones within my own body. There was no way to communicate with the external world while in warp. It made me feel small. I was getting used to my expanded awareness to being present across different stellar systems, to the almost omniscient view I had over my domains. This, going back to the constraints of a single view, the physical limitations of a single ship, felt almost like being caged. It made me feel anxious and vulnerable. The trip would only take about 20 minutes, but to the rest of the universe, more than three days would have passed by the time I emerged back into normal space. I was all too aware of how defenseless my other machines would be during that time. They had their orders and were autonomous enough to not stop in their tracks, but I couldn't fool myself. 
Should the Zanvirians choose to attack my solar systems now, my drones would be easy prey without me to direct them. It spoke volumes of why the Zanvirian fleets moved the way they did, continuously making short warp jumps rather than long leaps, like stones skipping on a lake's surface, always popping in and out of warp to avoid unpleasant surprises. Sadly, it wasn't a viable strategy for me. With my massive vehicles, each faster-than-light ticket was an expensive investment with a long setup. Making too many of them would be resource-prohibitive. There just wasn't anything I could do other than wait, cross my fingers, and hope that I wouldn't come out of warp to find my home razed and burned. So I waited, going over possible attack plans and flying patterns. Leaving warp felt as sudden as entering it had. One moment I was blind, the next I could see. Millions of machines popping into my awareness. Petabytes of information being downloaded into my brain as the pending logs finally reached me. My mind started working, shifting through the enormous pile of data, discarding irrelevant information and integrating the important bits into my memory banks. To my conscious mind, it felt as if I had never left. I had recollection of everything that happened in my absence, all the while I perfectly remembered being in warp, unable to communicate. I was used to having conflicting memories. These were more like parallel memories, yet another paradox of my strange new nature. I sifted through the memories of the last three days. A couple of factories had stopped production due to running out of input materials. Seventeen drones had been destroyed in a pipe collapse in the Centauri system. More than 4,000 others had landed in their respective hangars after encountering maintenance problems. Nothing to worry about. I subconsciously sent the commands to deal with each of the situations and focused my attention on my new surroundings. The colony world floated 80,000 kilometers away, a sphere of green and blue hues. Its bright, colorful tones contrasted with the pure black of space, making it stand out like a floating jewel. It was beautiful. It was just like Earth had once looked. It only served to fuel my rage. That the Zanvirians got to enjoy this safe, beautiful world even after having eviscerated ours. That crimes didn't have any repercussions. That the universe, that life itself, kept moving forward in spite of our tragedy. That we had been forgotten. No. That wouldn't do. In orbit, Right between the planet and my own position, there was the Zanvirian fleet. With 13 battleships and their escorting vessels, it was the largest combined fleet I had faced so far. And they had, indeed, wised up. Their warships were arrayed in a large arching formation, leaving tens of kilometers of empty space between each. This would prevent me from using my old tactics. The enemy started to react, turning their flanks toward me, but they hadn't opened fire yet, holding formation. They showered me in messages, transmissions asking for a truce, for a negotiation. I gave them the same consideration that humanity's own pleas had been given. That is to say, none. I weighed my options. Their plan, I realized, was both simple and hard to counter. 
If I tried to attack them all simultaneously, my machines would be too dispersed to be effective. But if I focused my strength on one target at a time, other enemies would be free to snipe me and my drones from the safety of distance. I could just ignore their warships and dive in for the kill, send all my swarm to ravage the world they were tasked with protecting, but after I destroyed their world, I would still need to face their warships. Running away wasn't an option, given how long my warp drive took to charge, and I'd be put into a worse tactical position, having already committed my army to a ground attack. What other options were there? Sending a couple of drones armed with nuclear warheads towards each of their ships? No, it would be obvious that the machines would be shot down long before they could reach their targets. The Zanvirian strategy was simple, but hard to counter. They had the advantage. We hovered there for a few moments in a standoff, facing each other, radio silent. And then... In a blink of an eye, eight of my support ships popped out of warp by my side. The advantage was mine. That was Chrysalis Part 4, performed by Corey Hawkins and Matthew Wolfe, directed by Alex Kemp. Chrysalis was written by S.H. Serrano and adapted by Stephen Michael and Macklin Malogi. Chrysalis is executive produced by Corey Hawkins, executive produced by Stephen Michael, and associate produced by Sarah Newton at Gunpowder and Sky. This season is produced by Toby Lawless at Wolf at the Door Studios.